Coming up this hour, we're going to tackle a whole bunch of headlines, and we'll be joined by a pastor who's pastoring two churches at the same time. That and more is coming up next on The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad you're here with us today. I don't think we say it enough, and I'm going to say it a whole bunch. That's my commitment on the show today, is make sure you know how much we appreciate you. A couple of things before we dive into what are probably way too many links and headlines here. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of these articles. You can send us messages. You can engage in dialogue on those articles. You can even review and share that page. You can find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. We actually got a new review that I'm going to share a little bit later in the show. But before we dive into, well, let's be honest, this is probably too much to try to tackle in one segment. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, before we, uh, before we begin this marathon in light of the marathon that was canceled today, how are you? Yes. I'm doing great, man. It's, uh, you know, it's not so hot outside. It was a good weekend. My son had a uh, baseball tournament, so I just love to sit and watch them play baseball. So it was a really fun, it was a fun family weekend. How about you? How'd you guys do this weekend? Well, I would love to tell you, Brian, but we just don't have enough time because I packed this segment too far. There are seven stories here. Uh, seven sto- we got seven stories in, well, essentially seven minutes. I'll answer briefly. We had a good weekend. Great. That's all I needed to know. Okay, perfect. Uh, We'll probably never do it like this again, but you want to take that first one? Yep. Out of the sports world, the Washington football team announced it's officially retiring the nickname Redskins. And so just a real interesting story. Uh, There a couple times throughout history, uh, uh, there's been kind of this uproar about the Redskins nickname, the Washington football team's nickname being uh, real derogatory for Native Americans, but it never caught any traction. In fact, their owner said he would, as long as he was the owner, he would never change the name. Well, uh, once uh, money started getting involved, FedEx, who's one of their main people and other main sponsors, Nike started pulling out. And so uh, the Redskins are no longer. They are now, uh, we don't know what their new name is going to be, but I think this is a positive thing. You know, I think we talked about this two weeks ago mm-hmm. that uh, even if you don't think it's a big deal, well, if it is a big deal to a a segment of the Native American uh, population, then change the name. Then we don't need to do that. But everyone's waiting to see now what happens with the Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves, and even possibly the Chicago Blackhawks. And so right. it will be interesting what comes of this. But this was the obvious first one yeah. uh, because the nickname is just derogatory. It's it's not really uh, debatable. I'm a little surprised by it. I'm not going to lie, but I I do think it's a good change. We would, by the way, since we're hitting like seven articles here, I would love to know maybe is there something that you'd love for Brian and I to tackle a little bit longer, take a deeper dive. But for now, these are all just going to be flyovers. And next, the headline reads out of NBC News, Florida shatters coronavirus records with almost 15,300 new cases. The staggering single day number comes as Florida finds itself at the center of the country's new surge, which ca- with cases and deaths continuing to rise. I'm assuming, Brian, that you saw this one. I did. And it's it's staggering to see the numbers right now. Uh, as we've been saying the last couple of weeks, then you see a chart about deaths and hospitalizations and you don't know what to make of all of them. But the very fact that we the Florida I read today uh, would have had, I think it's like the uh, I can might get the number wrong, but like the eighth most cases in the world, just the state of Florida. Uh, is pretty staggering. And so you can make arguments about hospitalizations and, and deaths and 
testing, but just that number is there's nothing good about it. Let's put it that way. And it's scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know if you have uh, friends who live in Florida. It, I will tell you, it does kind of elevate the anxiety level when you actually see friends and people you care deeply about tweeting and posting about it. Like, oh my gosh, that kind of really that kind of brings it close to home. So yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll tackle we'll tackle this a little bit later in the week. Why don't you take the next one? Yep, it says I thought it was a hoax. Patient age thirty dies after attending COVID party. Doctor says. A Texas doctor says a 30-year-old patient died after attending a COVID party. And it's just a tragic story because this patient uh, is just one of thousands to test positive in the state in San Antonio Hospital. Uh, They had another 10,000 cases uh, on Saturday. Uh, But the story, it's a real personal one. Dr. Jane Allenby talked about a 30-year-old patient at Methodist Hospital who told their nurse that they attended a COVID party just before the patient died. They looked at their nurse and said, I think I made a mistake. I thought it was a hoax, but it's not. And just a reminder, you know, even if you don't think that it's as bad as the news is making it or this, and that, this is still a deadly virus and it's not to be toyed with, with COVID parties and other things. And so uh, it's just a humanizing, but also just a really tragic story. So why don't we talk about ballots? Here's out of NPR news, signed, sealed, undelivered. That's clever. Thousands of mail-in ballots rejected for tardiness. I don't know if you saw this one. It says mail-in voting, which tens of millions of Americans are expected to use this November, is fraught with potential problems. Hundreds of thousands of ballots go uncounted each year because people make mistakes, such as forgetting to sign the form or sending it in too late. And so this article, again, all of these are up on our Facebook page. But uh, I feel like this is a topic that you and I are going to have to talk about a whole lot more between now and November. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're going to need to uh, not just discuss it. I think I need to educate myself about it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next one out of uh, Fox Detroit, Trump threatens automatic 10 years in prison for anyone harming statues, quote, even uh, if they even try. Historic monuments and statues have become the targets of anger and vandalism during protests in the wake of George Floyd's death while in police custody. The initial statues under fire were those of the Confederate soldiers and generals largely in the South, but the anger has spread the monuments well beyond that historical period. So Trump tweeted, no radical left anarchists, agitators, looters, or protesters will not be knocking down the Washington Monument, the Lincoln or Jefferson memorials if they even try an automatic 10 years in prison. Sorry, he tweeted. Uh, This is, again, a story that is going to be going on a lot over the next couple months, because I think uh, the president has found some footing on this one with people. You can tell he kind of floats stories that can get him some traction. But also, it's a very hot button topic right now about statues, which ones stay up, which ones come down, or is it okay if people tear them down? And so he has very much planted his flag in, I'm going to fight to keep just about all statues up. Okay, I think we're going to make it. We got two left in two minutes. Uh, headline out of relevance says the Supreme Court has ruled that half of Oklahoma is native land. This was actually about a week ago. Here, I like this uh, summary, though. This means that, for example, much of Tulsa is now located on Muscogee Creek land, meaning major crimes on that land must now be prosecuted at the federal level instead by the state itself, which doesn't have the same jurisdiction over native lands as it does over its own territory. In addition, this means that many criminal defendants convicted of major crimes will now have a recourse to challenge those convictions, arguing that the state of Oklahoma doesn't have jurisdiction over them. I think, again, this is probably one we'll talk about later at some point. Absolutely. I'm liking this fly through here. I'm liking this fly through. The last one is a hard story and uh, a sad story in the Christian world, at least. 
John Ortberg's church, as Christianity Today, John Ortberg's church announces a new investigation. Leadership apologizes for lack of transparency. It says that eroded trust. And you can Google John Ortberg right now. This is a really difficult story uh, about uh, megachurch pastor John Ortberg claimed his congregation had extensively investigated concerns about his youngest son and found no misconduct. But now elders at the 5,000-person congregation at Menlo Church say their initial investigation fell short and have announced plans for an additional, quote, supplemental investigation. And you and I touched on this this week. This story mm-hmm. is just so sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, there's there's just real dark parts of it and it has to do with his family. And, and it's so the one hand, it's just like, oh, it's like watching a train wreck. But two, it's a reminder that churches need to do uh, they're very, very, very best at remaining above board, remaining yep. transparent. Yes. Uh, and so this church is going back and doing another investigation. Uh, but some of the people involved have already kind of uh, said that uh, that this investigation is going to be a sham. So yet another big mega church having some problems at the leadership level. And we're just going to see how this plays out in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and I have no idea if this idea that we just wrapped up is actually even going to work. But if there were any articles that we just read you'd like for us to take a deeper dive on. We've shared all these to our Facebook page. You can have dialogue uh, with other people in the Common Good audience on any of them. Send us a message, share it and tag us, whatever way you want to get a hold of us. If there's something that we just talked about that you'd like for us to take a deeper dive on, just let us know and we would be happy to consider that. Coming up next though, Pastor Kyle Tennant, who's not only pastoring two churches at the same time, he also wrote a really wonderful book called Unfriend Yourself. And he's going to join us for two segments coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. A couple of places you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. We're, believe it or not, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And finally, wherever it is you get podcasts, if you wouldn't mind subscribing rating and reviewing does somehow mystically help us out. And we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. And Brian and I said pretty much every time that I think one of our favorite parts of the show is having guests on people who are much smarter, much more interesting than we are. And uh, that trend most certainly continues with a buddy of mine, the right Reverend Kyle Tennant. Welcome to the show. Good, sir. Hey, thanks. Super <laughs> fun to be here. Man, so super glad intimidated. Super intimidated by that introduction. No, no need to be. Well, okay, so why don't, speaking of introductions, why don't you introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Uh, My name is Kyle Tennant. I'm a pastor in Northeast Ohio, actually in my hometown, uh, Mm -hmm. Warren, Ohio. Uh, I pastor a church plant called Regeneration and an established congregation in the United Methodist Church, uh, Otterbein United Methodist Church. And uh, I've been in the United Methodist Church for seven years. I have pastored uh, at at least four and I think actually five United Methodist churches here in Warren in some capacity in the last seven years. Uh, I've got a son named Jack. Uh, he's 18 months and super fun. Um, a couple years ago, I wrote a book called Unfriend Yourself mm-hmm. about social media. And uh, it actually somehow feels less relevant because is anybody really on Facebook except our mothers? Uh, <laughs> but it also feels more relevant because social media is an angry place these days. So that's right. yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. So 
That's great. Kyle, I'm curious because I know you weren't in your hometown. Uh, what what was the thought process of starting a church and, and working in churches in your hometown? What what drew you back to your hometown? Uh, that would be because Jesus like threw me over his shoulder and walked me back here. Oh. <laughs> uh, my so uh, I was my wife and I are the pastor did our wedding is actually a pastor in the United Methodist Church. His name's Rick. And I did internships with Rick while a student at Moody Bible Institute, how that happened is again, only the Lord. And uh, Steph and I had been married about a year. We were trying to figure out what our next step was. Excuse me. We'd been married like five months. It was that November. And mm-hmm. we started praying about our next step. And Steph said, you know, every time we pray about this, I think about Warren and I think about Rick. And I said, mm-hmm. well, we're going to stop praying about that then. <laughs> because <laughs> let me review. I'm not moving to my hometown. I am not uh, becoming a Methodist, and uh, I am now a graduate of a United Methodist Seminary. I'm a commissioned elder in the East Ohio Conference of the United Methodist Church. I'm a United Methodist Church planter, uh, and I live 10 minutes from the house I grew up in. Wow. So that's wild. Yeah, but I mean, it really is. It really was the Lord. And I, I mean, I think sometimes we have to go back before we can go forward. Yeah. And I think that was part of this process was kind of coming back to this place and uh, experiencing it kind of as a more whole person than when Mm. I left Mm. and uh, getting to do ministry with my, I am the one of the go-to wedding officiants for my high school classmates, which is (laughs) kind of funny because I was not like super paying attention in high school. Um, But one of the first couples to come to Jesus through our church plant, uh, Jenna and Zach, I graduated from high school with Jenna. We were in band together. Um, I do a lot of baptisms for my high school classmates, babies. I've done their weddings. It's, it's wild. So it's really fun. That's amazing. All right. I love the imagery, by the way, of Jesus throwing you over his shoulder. One, because you're a tall person. Two, <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a modern version of that footprints poem, right? Like the one set of footprints is when the Lord dragged you back home to your yeah, home. But a lot more like aggressive, you know, <laughs> like a lot more like wrestling. Than- <laughs> We've all been there. Okay. So there's a couple of things about your story that I want to ask you about two in particular. Okay. One, how on earth does a Moody and Wheaton grad end up being a United Methodist pastor? And two, <laughs> I don't know if people caught this in your introduction. You're actually leading multiple churches at the same time. So can you kind of unpack both those things a little bit? Um, is it is it is it in poor taste for me to make a joke about how I didn't become a United Methodist Church because I hate the Bible? Like I didn't do that. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. I, I think when it happened, everybody was like, "Oh boy, Kyle, there he goes." Like he, there he went. Um, no, uh, I mean it was largely through this mentor of mine, Rick, and kind of stepping into ministry here. And I really, really, guys, I genuinely thought. I'm going to move here. I'm going to be my title when we first moved here in 2013 was connections pastor. Mm. I thought when I, I'm going to do this for two or three years, I'm going to apply to like normal churches when this is over. (laughs) And I'm just going to put on my resume first church. Like nobody needs to know. (laughs) And, uh, and, and I was tasked to start a, a worship service for like younger people and before you know it, I was church planting using another church's building and trying to bring other churches kind of almost into like a cooperative ministry to do it. And so I think a catalyst for me was when I was at Wheaton, we read uh, John Wesley, who uh, upon further review over the last seven years, I have been brainwashed enough to say that John Wesley really was 
one of the most interesting, incredible, and flawed church leaders in, in history. Mm-hmm. But it was reading his plain account of the people called Methodists and him describing kind of how revival took place in the ministry that he led. And I remember thinking, man, if there's even like a shred of that left, hmm. I want that. Um, and there's only a tiny little shred left, but uh, our church is kind of pressing into a lot of that, our church plant. Um, and then doing this church plant in a cooperative way uh, is what had me kind of having my hands in multiple churches at once. And so um, we planted Regen in the fall of 2014. At that time, it was attached to the First United Methodist Church of Warren. Uh, we moved it to the Grace United Methodist Church of Warren, which I started pastoring in 2015. We moved uh, Regen under its kind of shepherding care in 2016. Regen has always met inside Otterbein United Methodist Church. I live inside their parsonage. Um, And so we've kind of had this more regional vision from the very beginning, and we would not be where we are without the financial investment and prayer and like even like people capital, just people coming and helping and get it done in those early years. And uh, it's, I mean, like, I mean, we're baptizing new believers constantly. And uh, I, I mean, I'm not a mega church pastor by any stretch of the imagination uh, and deeply believe that that would probably be the worst thing to ever happen to me because I think Mm. it would give a platform to parts of my character that just don't need a platform in the season. But we do really get to be discipling a lot of first generation Christians and seeing like entire generational trajectories change. So that's kind of how it happened. I mean, it really was just this is the door that the Lord opened yeah. while I was in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, kind of conservative evangelical bastion. That was the the door the Lord opened. And we've had like so much favor from denominational leaders and so many great friendships um, with other pastors in our system. So it's been, it's been really rich, wild, but really rich. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm sure people out there are curious. How do you pastor more than one church? How do you split your time? How just practically do you do that? Uh, probably not well. And <laughs> there, there's a reason why I've had like seasons of like mentors, spiritual, like, uh, like, going to counseling, having a spiritual director and having it like, I often have like cadres of paid professionals holding me together uh, (laughs) so that my wife doesn't have to do it all by herself. Uh, (laughs) My wife's name is Steph and we are partners in this and she's great. But, and so she helps a lot too. She's the discipleship director here at Regen, which essentially makes her our, our executive pastor. And, uh, you know, here's what I've always kind of viewed it as. I don't schedule it. I don't say I'm going to do regen from eight to noon and grace or Otterbind in those seasons from noon to four. I, I, I've always viewed it. I view a lot of our ministry as parenting. And mm. so in certain seasons, one of your children needs more from you than another. Yeah. And that I only have one child, but I've observed this to be true. Mm. Um, and so in that season, you really show up to that child and meet their needs mm-hmm. and care for them. And when that season kind of ends and the other child kind of needs your attention. So it is like whack-a-mole in that sense, (laughs) but it's really good. That's really good. All right. So coming up next, I'm going to ask Kyle a bunch more questions, not only about pastoring multiple churches, but also what it's like to be leading churches on opposite sides of a looming denominational split. And also more about his book, Unfriend Yourself. That and more is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole heap of places, a smorgasbord, really. Uh, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can send us messages. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good and wherever it is you get podcasts. And we're joined for a second segment by Pastor Kyle Tennant. He is the pastor of uh, multiple churches in his hometown, and he wrote a book, and he promised off-air he's going to write another book. But the question... The question. <laughs> and now on air. <laughs> Can I get you to uh, say that on air? That's the on record conviction that I'm wanting. Um, so you're leading multiple churches, but not just multiple churches. I'm curious, what's it like leading churches that are essentially on opposite sides of what appears to be a sort of looming denominational split? Can you, can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So if you don't know, the United Methodist Church has been wrestling with its identity and its kind of core convictions as relates to what we call human sexuality, which I feel like is an uncomfortable phrase, uh, but it's the one we keep using. And, uh, uh, and so that kind of came up for us in a fresh way as we began pursuing a more intentional relationship, regen, pursuing a more intentional relationship with the church that's hosted us, Otterbein. And in some of those early conversations started to come to the conclusion, like, uh, you know, we kind of represent kind of in this little at 1128 state road, Northwest here in Northeast Ohio, we represent what's kind of happening in the Mm. United Methodist church as a whole. I think the, the plot twist being, uh, that region where it is predominantly people in their, 20s and 30s, although we're a multi-generational community and increasing in that way all the time, predominantly more on what we in our denomination would call the traditionalist kind of position. And a lot of those at uh, Otterbein kind of hanging in the more progressive zone. And that's, by the way, not exclusively true of either group. And that's even kind of the reality of, I'm sure it's the reality of pastoring in any church in America, but it's the reality of pastoring in the United Methodist Church right now, Mm -hmm. where what used to be a strength of ours was we're a big tent and you can have the guy that loves John MacArthur in the same church as the woman who like is over the moon for, I don't know, insert someone crazy, wild, progressive here. And um, I don't know. I don't want to name names. Sometimes I feel like it gets you in trouble, but in almost every United Methodist church, there's a John MacArthur guy, which is really confusing. And, um, and so it, it requires, it's just requires, I have found, um, you know, somebody, I can't remember who is smarter than me, says that the first duty of love is to listen. Mm-hmm. That's Paul so, Is it? Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a reality of I'm a guy that likes to move really fast. Um, I tend to associate a lot of my gifting more in the apostolic zone of like starting new things and running at 120 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And at every level of being part of the United Methodist church in this season, it is this engaging of the first duty of love is to listen as some of my closest friends in this system are on the opposite side of where I am on this. Hmm. And uh, that's been a really rich experience too, uh, because I think most people think very little, a lot of conservative evangelicals think very little of theological progressives. Hmm. And I was trained to think very little of theological progressives. And then you sit in a room with them and you realize these are people that know the Bible. Um, These are people that really have a heart for people. And so it's really been an interesting time because as you may have noticed too, our, our world and our culture is very divided on 
everything. And so it's just, it's, it's required a different kind of approach to pastoral ministry than I maybe thought I would be taking five or 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, Speaking of things that divide us, you wrote a book about social media called unfriend yourself. And uh, it asks the question to examine the social media use from a Christian perspective. Ian and I talk, it feels like almost every show about (laughs) just how, discouraging our social media can be, especially yeah. other believers. Uh, so why did you write the book? And uh, what are you hoping for Christians and social media would either come out of the book or that uh, ways that we would grow in our use of social media? Yeah, I wrote that in 2012. And doesn't that just somehow feel like a happier time? I don't know if it yes. was. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think when I was writing that book, I was writing it actually at the end of my time at Moody and uh, kind of as a directed study and Moody publishers picked it up through a friend who knew a ton of the people at publishing. And so, and that was a dream come true. I'd always wanted to write a book. And so getting to write it then, but I, I would love to, sometimes I think like I should take another crack at this because hmm. social media and how the church was engaging with it. When I was writing about this in 2010 yeah. and 2011, it got published in twelve. Social media is so different now right. because it is just this place where I feel like Christians get on social media and it's like somehow they like decide that the one and others don't matter anymore. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And it's mind blowing to me. In fact, actually, um, you know, with all of the stuff that has come out uh, as we just really as a country been forced to look. Uh, the reality of systemic racism in the face, or at least listen more closely to our brothers and sisters of color as they tell us like something is not right. Mm. My, my wife woke up uh, uh, one Sunday morning and she said, you know, I don't know if COVID is going to kill our church as much as our church's disagreement about racism is Wow, Um, because it was getting pretty intense. And I don't think people necessarily were doing it at each other. But it was just people so boldly posting their like opinions about whether or not systemic racism exists and whether or not Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd or this, that or the, you know, and, and right. so I, I would really hope Christians could somehow find their way to like the discipline of shutting up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, boy, is the like post button just real tempting, you know? <laughs> Um, I bet, I bet you, I've never thought about this before, but if, if social media had existed with Adam and Eve, it wouldn't have been like a piece of fruit. It would have been like uh-huh. the post button, like the That's tweet good. button. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it feels just as dangerous. Yeah. So I would hope like some wisdom and some discernment could come in, but it just does not feel like a platform that right. is conducive to it. So, yeah. yeah. Right. See, I think you just perfectly encapsulated so much of why I wanted to have you on the show. Not just because, like cards on the table, I think you're brilliant. And I think you're a great pastor and husband and father. Gosh, but you, thanks. I really mean that. I do. But I, I think that you also synthesize what, for many people, feel like completely distinct and different categories of society or of our own brain or theology. And I'd, I would love for like the last, I don't know, minute and a half that we have left or so, would you talk a little bit about how do we find our way forward in such a divided world? Like Brian and I end up talking about this all the time and you were kind of living this even like in your pastoral role. And then with this yeah. book you written, yeah. you know, just a few years ago, what, what's a way forward? Can you paint for us some kind of picture about how, how can we actually navigate amidst our differences in the weeks and months ahead? And in only a minute and a half, here's yeah, what I right. think. <laughs> <Just wrap that up. laughs> 
<laughs> you have to disavow your reality being defined by anyone but Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if your reality as defined by Jesus conveniently agrees with blue or red, you're not living the reality of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the Sunday morning after President Trump was elected, some people came into church cartwheeling and some people came into church wearing multiple safety pins. That was the thing after he was elected, like I'm safe to talk to. Mm-hmm. And I remember like this line of the holy book called the Lord of the Rings come to me when <laughs> the ants Treebeard says, they ask him whose side is he on? And he says, I don't know if anybody's, I'm not on anybody's side because nobody's on my side. And I think that's Jesus. Hmm. And so the reality is it's kind of seeing the faults of both ideologies or both sides kind of presented to us on any issue and the inconsistencies and naming like, I mean, for me, I, I don't talk about systemic racism without talking about justice for the unborn. Right, um, right. And that means I just smacked both sides of the aisle in the same sermon. Right. And so right, right. It's, it's finding that and kind of being honest about that and choosing relationship uh, a lot longer and invitation a lot longer before I offer a word of challenge, hmm. which is really hard to do. I go home a lot of days with my tongue pretty bloody. Yeah. And right. But uh, it's good. And I think that silence is where we really do cultivate understanding. Hmm. Um, and if we're, if we're really looking to Jesus, he's going to lead us down a middle way, uh, that makes everybody uncomfortable. Man, that's so good. Kyle, thank you for sharing that. That other voice you're hearing is pastor Kyle Tenney. He's not only a pastor, but he's also also author of a wonderful book called unfriend yourself available wherever books are sold. I highly, highly encourage you to go pick it up. Kyle, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to be with us today. It was a super honor. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Back, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is—I was going to say—it's a scorcher. It's not that bad, actually. I went for a run, and I—I I felt like I was going to die a lot less than I have on previous runs from last week. So that's a win, right? I felt the same way sitting outside in a chair. So <laughs> <laughs> pretty much—it's pretty much the same thing. Speaking much of sitting pleasant, outside today. in a chair, you can find Facebook. You can find the Facebook, a Facebook. You can find our Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. Shoot us a message. Even if you don't have a suggestion, but you just want to say hi, you can do that. Plus, we're podcasted wherever it is you get your podcast. I keep I keep teasing it up, but I don't have it in front of me. I'll read it later. We have a, a new review that I thought was very kind. So I'll show that a little bit later. But subscribing, rating, and reviewing does help us out a whole lot. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And a, uh, it's a segment that we haven't done in a while. I picked the wrong week to do it, apparently. You did. Because Brian actually didn't preach yesterday. But uh, I'm, I'm interested anyway. And you mentioned how you could still speak to, like, the series in general that, that you're right. in. So I figured, uh, yeah, let's just go with it. Let's just take a sec. It's been a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, that we've actually talked about what we're teaching in our churches. So why don't, why don't you go first? But, and it is I, it is funny because it's literally the first Sunday I haven't preached since the pandemic began. <laughs> That's wild. It's, what luck. What luck. 
literally the first, but we're uh, doing a quick three week uh, series on Micah six, eight, that very famous verse. I, the first week I talked about life verses, and yeah. this is one that people talk about often, right? What's the Lord require of us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And, uh, Spent the first week, though, trying to give the background. Not a lot of people know very much about uh, the prophet Micah and really trying to dig down into why was what was Micah going uh, to prophesy about? What was he being sent to bring judgment about uh, in in this setting? And what it was was to to just kind of uh, sum it up was the leaders and the. Uh, uh, the religious leaders, the political leaders were just uh, lining their own pockets, a lot of bribery, and they were really pushing down and um, taking advantage of the poor. Uh, and so that is the setting into which God comes through Micah and pronounces judgment, but then also keeps giving them pictures of hope that even amongst the judgment, there's going to be hope coming and he even gives a picture of. Uh, you know, of a savior being born in Bethlehem and, and these pictures of hope. But then in the midst of that, you get to Micah 6, 8 that says, well, what does the Lord require of the people? Like he's judging them, but what does he want them to do? Hmm. Uh, and it's not do more worship services, although those are important. It's not more sacrifice, although those are important. It is uh, do justice, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And so the first week, you know, very timely, I talked about justice and talked about it from the standpoint of loving our neighbor and uh, to open up the story of the Good Samaritan a little bit and just talked about um, viewing others above ourselves and what that means. And then our uh, our other pastor, Scott, yesterday talked about mercy. Uh, and this week I'm going to talk about walking humbly with our God. And so it feels very practical. What I said to them was, while this was written to another time and another situation, God's requirements of them remain God's requirements of us. And how do we grow in that? And how do we do that? And so felt good about it. And it feels very timely. And uh, I just love, pre I love taking kind of time to preach in the old Testament because a lot of yeah. times uh, we just go new Testament, new Testament, but, but there's such richness in the old Testament. And so, uh, but I did enjoy a time, a, a, a Sunday off yesterday, uh, but excited to get back at it. Now I know you, uh, you hadn't preached in a little while, but you did yesterday. So I'm, I'm guessing that you just kind of ate that up again to be able to do that again. And what, what did you preach on? Well, it's not totally accurate to say I preached yesterday because we recorded it on Monday. That's our Valid new, Valid that's point. our new recording point, which gives me anxiety because if something happens, you know, drastic in the news between Monday and Sunday, that's a, that's a long window, but uh, I will yeah. share briefly, we'll share this link on the Facebook page out of Barna, one third of practicing Christians are not watching online church during COVID-19. So that, I read that after I preached and I was like, well, that's humbling. But we're, uh, <laughs> we're going through a book by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Relationships, which yep. is really good, by the way, if you've not read it. There's another one called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. They're both fantastic. So the week I had was listening incarnationally. And I began, actually began with this meme that I'd found Somebody posted and said, uh, my wife just stopped and said, you weren't even listening, were you? And I thought, that's a pretty weird way to start a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> kind of my whole premise was like, it's, it's hard to listen, but listening is actually like deeply embedded in the Christian story. Like Matthew 4, we hear and then we follow. Romans 10, hearing comes before faith. James pretty famously says, we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I reference Proverbs, 20, uh, uh, Proverbs 17 that talks about, 
even fools are thought wise if they keep silent. And I'm like, yeah, I've always kind of hung my hat on that one. Like, if I don't know what's going on, just shut up. Just just stop talking. So I walked people through this quiz to kind of gauge how are we at actually listening. Talked a little bit about what the incarnation actually was, which was fun because I I think we know generally what good and bad listening is. But thinking about listening incarnationally, at least for me and preparing for it was like a whole new level. Like there's a I think it was Krista Tippett. She said something like really listening is about being present, not just being quiet. We tend to think that if I'm just not talking, that I'm really listening. But all of us have had conversations with people who are like sort of there, but not really there because they were doom scrolling on their phone or watching TV over your shoulder. So here, I don't have time to get into all of it, but I, I was I was pretty proud of our team because I thought, I thought this actually was super memorable. So we talked about Jesus and we talked about Philippians 2 and that as sort of a model for how do we listen incarnationally after I kind of unpack the incarnation. One, Jesus left his world. He left his world, and when we listen, we kind of leave our world of opinions and our need to be right all the time. And then, mm-hmm. secondly, he entered our world and talked about, you know, how the writer of Hebrews says, like, we we have a high priest who understands, who like who gets it, right? He's not unsympathetic to the struggles of being a human. But this one, I'd never thought of before. Jesus remained himself, and we always talk about, you know, his pastor is fully God, fully man. But as it pertains to us, it's, I sometimes think. We feel like, you know, if I really listen to you, I'm somehow maybe compromising on my convictions. And I, I think it was Rick Warren who said, man, compassion doesn't mean compromise. You can be fully present with someone. That doesn't mean that you're going to vote or believe differently, but we can be present with people. And then the last was to live between two worlds. Like, what if what if we saw these tensions? We've been talking a lot about tensions on this show. What if tensions weren't just like, problems to erase but like opportunities to love and i loved this is the only reason i knew that it was paul tillich because kyle quoted him earlier in the show he said the first duty of love is to listen and there's one Mm. other quote one other quote that kind of for me hit me like a ton of bricks david osberger said being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they are almost indistinguishable amazing I i i i mean think about the last time someone like really listened to you like you, my guess is you felt really loved. Now think about the last time you heard someone say, let me tell you about those Christians. They are such good listeners. I've never yeah. seen a group of people more sincerely interested to know my world and they're curious and they ask questions. That's not often the reputation that we have. So like, what would it look like for us to see listening as a way to love people as opportunities to love? Because, and I kind of, I kind of got a little Towards the end, I I felt really strongly about this. I almost took it out, but I I think how I closed it was something like, ultimately, I think it's impossible to love well and listen poorly. I really do think that's true. If we want to love people well, you know, M. Scott Peck says, you can't really listen well and do anything else at the same time. And I thought, there's a conviction. I must have admitted 17 times in this sermon, like, this is not an area of strength for me. Just to get it off the table, I'm not preaching to you as someone who's like arrived in any way, shape, or form here. So at the very least, and Brian, I think you've done a good job of talking about this. It certainly was a convicting message to preach and to prepare for just simply because of how much of a struggle it is for me. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was really it was really life-giving. So I, I love this series that we're in, and it sounds like your series is going really well. And you got one more week left in yours, right? One more. I'll be back at it this week. So looking forward to preaching again. And where do people go if they want to if they want to see that and other messages? 
Yep. Uh, you can find us online at uh, FCCC.church, but you go to our Facebook page. We're still streaming on Facebook Live and on YouTube. That is Four Corners Community Church. And where would people go to find you? They can go to communitychristian.org slash online or communityonline.tv. And uh, more resources than you could ever actually want or ask for, you can find them all there. And that means, Brian, our first hour is in the books, but I'm really excited for our second hour. we got some articles. Pastor Calvin Robinson is going to be joining us. You're not going to miss it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett. And me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, America is in the grips of a fundamentalist revival. Plus, we're joined by Pastor Calvin Robinson. And that's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is, I was going to say it's a scorcher. It's not that bad, actually. I went for a run, and I I felt like I was going to die a lot less than I have on previous runs from last week. So that's a win, right? I felt the same way sitting outside in a chair. So <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, it's pretty much the same thing. Speaking much of sitting outside today. in a chair, you can find Facebook. You can find the <laughs> Facebook, a Facebook. You can find our Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. Shoot us a message. Even if you don't have a suggestion, but you just want to say hi, you can do that. Plus, we're podcasted wherever it is you get your podcast. I keep... I keep teasing it up, but I don't have it in front of me. I'll read it later. We have a, uh, a new review that I thought was very kind, so I'll show that a little bit later. But subscribing, rating, and reviewing does help us out a whole lot. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And a, uh, it's a segment that we haven't done in a while. I picked the wrong week to do it, apparently, you did. because Brian actually didn't preach yesterday. But uh, I'm... I'm interested anyway, and you mentioned how you could still speak to like the series in general that, that you're right. in. So I figured, uh, yeah, let's just go with it. Let's just take a sec. It's been a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, that we've actually talked about what we're teaching in our churches. So why don't why don't you go first? But, and it is I, it is funny because it's literally the first Sunday I haven't preached since the pandemic began. <laughs> That's wild. It's- what luck. What luck. Literally the first, but we're uh, doing a quick three week uh, series on Micah six, eight, that very famous verse. I, the first week I talked about life verses, and yeah. this is one that people talk about often, right? What's the Lord require of us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly and uh, spent the first week though, trying to give the background. Not a lot of people know very much about uh, the prophet Micah. 
and really trying to dig down into why was what was Micah going uh, to prophesy about? What was he being sent to bring judgment about uh, in in this setting? And what it was was to to just kind of uh, sum it up was the leaders and the uh, uh, the religious leaders, the political leaders were just uh, lining their own pockets, a lot of bribery, and they were really pushing down and um, taking advantage of the poor. Uh, and so that is the setting into which God comes through Micah and pronounces judgment, but then also keeps giving them pictures of hope that even amongst the judgment, there's going to be hope coming. And he even gives a picture uh, you know, of a savior being born in Bethlehem and, and these pictures of hope. But then in the midst of that, you get to Micah 6, 8 that says, well, what does the Lord require of the people? Like he's judging them, but what does he want them to do? Hmm. Uh, and it's not do more worship services, although those are important. It's not more sacrifice, although those are important. It is uh, do justice, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And so the first week, you know, very timely, I talked about justice and talked about it from the standpoint of loving our neighbor and uh, to open up the story of the Good Samaritan a little bit and just talked about um, viewing others above ourselves and what that means. And then our uh, our other pastor, Scott, yesterday talked about mercy. Uh, and this week, I'm going to talk about walking humbly with our God. And so it feels very practical. What I said to them was, while this was written to another time and another situation, God's requirements of them remain God's requirements of us. And how do we grow in that? And how do we do that? And so felt good about it. And it feels very timely. And uh, I just love, I love taking kind of time to preach in the Old Testament, because a lot of times uh, we just go New Testament, New Testament, but, but there's such richness in the Old Testament. And so, uh, but I did enjoy a time, uh, uh, a Sunday off yesterday, uh, but excited to get back at it. Now, I know you, uh, you hadn't preached in a little while, but you did yesterday. So I'm ex- I'm guessing that you just kind of ate that up again to be able to do that again. And what, what did you preach on? Well, it's not totally accurate to say I preached yesterday because we recorded it on Monday. That's, our new, uh, that's our new recording point, which gives me anxiety because if something happens, you know, drastic in the news between Monday and Sunday, that's a, that's a long window. But uh, I will yeah. share briefly, we'll share this link on the Facebook page out of Barna, one third of practicing Christians are not watching online church during COVID-19. So that, I read that after I preached and I was like, well, that's humbling. But we're uh, <laughs> we're going through a book by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Relationships, which yep. is really good, by the way, if you've not read it. There's another one called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. They're both fantastic. So the week I had was listening incarnationally. And I began, actually began with this meme that I'd found Somebody posted it and said, uh, my wife just stopped and said, you weren't even listening, were you? And I thought, that's a pretty weird way to start a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> kind of my whole premise was like, it's it's hard to listen, but listening is actually like deeply embedded in the Christian story. Like Matthew 4, we hear and then we follow. Romans 10, hearing comes before faith. James pretty famously says, we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I reference Proverbs, 20, uh, uh, Proverbs 17 that talks about, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent. And I'm like, yeah, I've always kind of hung my hat on that one. Like, if I don't know what's going on, just shut up. Just just stop talking. So I walked people through this quiz to kind of gauge how are we at actually listening. Talked a little bit about what the incarnation actually was, which was fun because I I think we know generally what good and bad listening is. But thinking about listening yeah. incarnationally, 
at least for me in preparing for it was like a whole new level. Like there's a, I think it was Krista Tippett. She said something like really listening is about being present, not just being quiet. We tend to think that if I'm just not mm. talking that I'm really listening, but all of us have had conversation with people who are like s- sort of there, but not really there because they were doom scrolling on their phone or watching TV over your shoulder. So here I don't have time to get into all of it, but I, I was, I was pretty proud of our team because I thought, I thought this actually was super memorable. So we talked about Jesus and we talked about Philippians two and that as sort of a model for how do we listen incarnationally after I kind of unpack the incarnation one, Jesus left his world. He left his world. And when we listen, we kind of leave our world of opinions and our need to be right all the time. And then secondly, he entered our world and talked about, you know, how the writer of Hebrews says, like we, we have a high priest who understands who like who gets it right. He's not unsympathetic to the struggles of being a human. But this one I'd never thought of before. Jesus remained himself. And we always talk about, you know, his pastor's fully God, fully man. But as it pertains to us, I sometimes think we feel like, man, if I really listen to you, I'm somehow maybe compromising on my convictions. And I, I think it was Rick Warren who said, man, compassion doesn't mean compromise. It can be fully present with someone. That doesn't mean that you're going to vote or believe differently, but we can be present with people. And then the last was to live between two worlds. Like, what if... What if we saw these tensions? We've been talking a lot about tensions on this show. What if tensions weren't just like problems to erase, but like opportunities to love? And I loved this is the only reason I knew that it was Paul Tillich because Kyle quoted him earlier in the show. He said, the first duty of love is to listen. And there's one Mm. other quote, one other quote that kind of for me hit me like a ton of bricks. David Osberger said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Amazing. And I thought, yeah. I, I, I mean, think about the last time someone like really listened to you. Like you, my guess is you felt really loved. Now think about the last time you heard someone say, let me tell you about those Christians. They are such good listeners. I've never yeah. seen a group of people more sincerely interested to know my world and they're curious and they ask questions. That's not often the reputation that we have. So like, what would it look like for us to see listening as a way to love people, as opportunities to love, because, and I kind of, I kind of got a little towards the end. I, I felt really strongly about this. I almost took it out, but I, I think how I closed it was something like, ultimately, I think it's impossible to love well and listen poorly. I really do think that's true. If we want to mm. love people well, you know, M. Scott Peck says you can't really listen well and do anything else at the same time. And I thought, there's wow. a conviction. I must have admitted seventeen times in this sermon, like. This is not an area of strength for me. Just to get it off the table, I'm not preaching to you as someone who's like arrived in any way, shape, or form here. So at the very least, and Brian, I think you've done a good job of talking about this. It certainly was a convicting message to preach and to prepare for just simply because of how much of a struggle it is for me. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was really it was really life-giving. So I, I love this series that we're in, and it sounds like your series is going really well. And you got one more week left in yours, right? One more. I'll be back at it this week. So looking forward to preaching again. And where do people go if they want to if they want to see that and other messages? Yep. Uh, you can find us online at uh, FCCC.church. But you go to our Facebook page. We're still streaming on Facebook Live and on YouTube. That is Four Corners Community Church. And where would people go to find you? They can go to communitychristian.org slash online or communityonline.tv. And uh more resources than you could ever actually want or ask for. You can find them all there. And that means, Brian, our first hour is in the books, but I'm really excited for our second hour. we got some articles. 
Pastor Calvin Robinson is going to be joining us. You're not going to miss it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places like Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can send us a message. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is, you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind, find the podcast, subscribe to it, rate it, review it. All of that does help us out a whole ton. And Brian and I mention it every time. Our favorite part about doing this show is bringing other people kind of into the fold, into the narrative, because we want to assume postures of learners, of listeners. We want to grow ourselves, and we hope that this content is helpful for you. And so we're absolutely thrilled to have on the line Pastor Calvin Robinson. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm Calvin hey, Robinson, I'm pastor pleasure. of Cornerstone Community Church in Chicago, a multi-ethnic church on the near south side, and I'm glad to be with you guys today. Likewise. Would you, yeah, would you just expand on that a little bit? Would you take a minute or two and just introduce yourself to our audience in whatever way you see fit? Yeah, well, uh, I'm the pastor of Cornerstone Community Church. We're a multi-ethnic church, primarily Asian, located just outside of Chinatown in Chicago. And uh, we are a, a ministry whose vision, our mission is to live free, to walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ and to invite our brothers and sisters in the community to do the same. Hmm. I'm I'm curious, uh, as Ian and I have been interviewing with so many pastors, and it's been so good, uh, the phrase that keeps coming up, multi-ethnic, multicultural, and uh, I'm wondering, um, what what uh, how do you do it? How is that achieved, and how difficult of a congregation is that to uh, kind of put together? Well, it's a good question. I don't know if there's any exact science to it. Uh, my philosophy is that... Uh, all humanity, all of humanity is groaning and we all speak the same language, the language of pain. Mm. And so what I find in my ministry is that when I speak to the general condition of fallen mankind, uh, people tend to resonate with that regardless of their culture, of their mm. ethnicity. When we speak to the general fallenness of mankind and humanity overall, I believe everybody resonates with that. And I try to do that without regard for the different uh, cultural differences among us. I try to, mm. as much as I can, it's not possible to do completely, right. but as much as I can, I try to uh, ignore or be less conscious of the idea that we are different mm. so that I can communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in a relevant way, speaking to the souls of men and not to the bodies and, the, and necessarily mm. the flesh of men. What are some of the things that have surprised you about pastoring a multicultural church? Are there things that you, you could not have anticipated that surprised you or have been more of a joy or a struggle than you anticipated? It's, it's a surprising kind of ministry in the fact that uh, different cultures do have different traditions, uh, different right. ways of treating their leaders, their teachers hmm. and things like that. And I kind of had to get used to some of those differences. Uh, I'm a very freewheeling kind of person. I love for the people around me to be free, to feel free and very comfortable. Mm. And I find with some certain people groups that it's more difficult to be comfortable with the person who's supposed to be the leader, the guru, mm. if you will. And I'm just not the guru guy. I, I'm a pretty simple, basic guy following Jesus Christ as best mm. I can. And so I had to get used to the, to that idea of this, this honor, the, the, the this, uh, gratuitous honor that's always placed upon leaders and pastors uh, mm -hmm. in certain in certain ethnic groups. 
But now I'm beginning to lean into it and to help us all to move away as much as possible from our cultural backgrounds and to really gravitate more toward a biblical perspective and the kingdom perspective mm. uh, and, and to create together a kingdom culture that rivals every one of our individual culture as much as possible. Mm. Yeah, along, along those lines, I'm curious when you pastor a multicultural church, how does that even affect down to the nuts and bolts of putting a, a Sunday morning service together? Do you have to think through different perspectives? How do you go about putting a Sunday service together? Well, as far as my sermon is concerned, now the service is a pretty traditional uh, Christian traditional service. Uh, but in my sermon preparation, I always try to read uh, a broad spectrum of different commentators from different backgrounds, primarily Asian, some African, to be able to give quotes and uh, and uh, to recognize these theologians all around the world from different cultures so that everyone can understand that they are recognized and that mm-hmm. we embrace uh, a broader theology than simply a Western, a Western theology. That's one thing that we do in our services. Otherwise, our service is pretty much a traditional Christian service. Mm. So I, we're coming up on two months now almost, which is hard to believe, of the death of George Floyd. I'm wondering how has that and other things that are happening in news, the media, in our own city, how, how has that affected the way that you've kind of gone after your sermon structure and your sermon crafting? Well, that's that's a really good question. I'm an African-American man, as you can probably tell. <laughs> uh, and, and so I have really struggled uh, with the whole George Floyd uh, thing. Uh, seeing that video over and over again mm-hmm. really engenders a lot of emotions and things like that. But I'm also a pastor. Right. And I'm a pastor of a multicultural church. And so what I believe my mission, my goal was, is in all of this, is to help our congregation to understand the history of America, uh, to tell my story, to give my testimony, to give context and to help us to better understand uh, the, the bigger picture and how it how it affects uh, African-Americans in their individual lives. Hmm. Otherwise, uh, beginning in March, the middle of March, when the uh, when this coronavirus hit and we went into all went into lockdown, uh, I believe that and I sensed in my heart that God was calling me and our church into a time of quiet a season of silence. And so when the George Floyd incident happened, of course, all of my emotions are running wild, Hmm. but it seems to me that the mandate that God had given me back in March did not change. It's a very interesting thing. I was still called to a time of quiet, Hmm. not to a time of protest, not to a time of argumentation, not to a time of frustration, but a time of silence to listen to the voice of the Lord. And something I'm learning uh, through this entire incident is that just because I am upset doesn't mean that the kingdom is upset. Mm. Just because there's a a five alarm, three alarm fire going off in our world does not necessarily change the objectives of God or God's agenda. And as a kingdom person, as difficult as this has been for me, I have had to discipline myself to be able to separate myself uh, from my culture and from this world, as we're all called to do, Mm. and to truly lean into the kingdom of God, to hear what the Lord is saying to me. Uh, And it just so happens that he he, he may not be in my life right now as focused upon this emergency that our nation is having. I think there's a lesson there for all Christians. 
for all of us to realize that sometimes we're following our emotions and sometimes we're following the news and sometimes we're following the media. But Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice and a stranger they will not follow. And, and so the mission continues, even though these emergencies are occurring, yeah. the mission continues, even though I'm very frustrated about what's going on, I have to be able to keep my balance hmm. and uh, keep my distance from this world and allow God to sanctify me and, and bring me into the kingdom conversation. Hmm. And in his time when he is ready, he'll bring me into this conversation. But this has just not been the time for me or for my church to really engage on these matters. When everybody's talking really loud and everyone's emotions are all flailing about, I think sometimes the more wise thing for the Christian to do is to silence himself and to listen to the Lord, to hear mm -hmm. past the argumentation and to hear the pain that's coming from the hearts of so many and to craft a way whereby we can minister to the pain and bring comfort into a hurting world. Well, Pastor, you just brought us to church, man. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's really good. I'm excited that you're sticking around for one more segment. You've listened to Pastor Calvin Robinson. He's a pastor of Cornerstone Community Church on Chicago's nearest south side. He's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's the best way to get in contact with us. If you have an idea for a show, it's where we post all of our articles. You can also get the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts and subscribing, rating, reviewing really helps a ton. Even share it with a friend if you want. And uh, we've been joined by Calvin Robinson. Pastor Calvin Robinson is the pastor of Cornerstone Community Church on Chicago's near South Side. And pastor, in the earlier segment, you had, you had mentioned the word freedom a couple of times. And I feel like in a lot of circles... That's kind of a hot button issue even, but it's something that you've mentioned is really close to your heart. Can you tell us a little more about why freedom is so important to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, e even as a young, a young adult, uh, when I came to Christ, I was always amazed uh, by the freedom that Jesus has in the Gospels. Hmm. The way he is portrayed, uh, the way he lives his life is as a man who was completely free, nothing was binding him, nothing was holding him down or holding him back. He was a Jewish man who did not necessarily honor all of the traditions of the forefathers. He didn't honor the traditions of his culture. Uh, he moved in and out of ethnic circles and cultural circles at will. Uh, he was a man who, who listened to the voice of God and who was able to, to disidentify with everything in this world to bring up his anchor and to let go of the world and to completely embrace the kingdom of God. And this is what made Jesus, I, I really believe this is what made Jesus such an, an oxymoron, so mm. challenging, so difficult to appreciate for so many people is that he did not abide by or adhere to any of the world's philosophies regarding money regarding drink, regarding lifestyle. He just didn't, he didn't cling to this world. That's freedom to me. And he was free to love all people. And to be honest, there is no freedom. There is no freedom without love. If a person tells me that they are not free to love, that they hate another person, if you are not free to love, then you are not truly free. And that's something I believe in our Western culture. We get confused sometimes. We talk about our freedoms in our country 
and our liberties and all these things we have. But true freedom is the freedom to love. Hmm. If you are not free to love, I don't care what the government gives you or the Constitution says you have. If you are not free to love, you are not free. But the Bible says whom the son has set free, not whom the Western world or America or any country whom the son has set free is free indeed, Mm. free to disagree, free to go the opposite direction of where the masses may be going, free Mm. to think independent thoughts and to think the thoughts of God after him, even when those thoughts don't line up with what's relevant today. Mm. That's what I mean by freedom is that We, the children of God, have this birthright uh, to be disidentified with this entire world and to walk an entirely different and a new path. And so often we neglect that freedom and we opt opt rather for a freedom that the world can give. Hmm. Any freedom that the world can give, the world can take away. But the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ can never be taken away. And so as an African-American man, that's really dear to my heart as well. Because sometimes we talk about being equal and fighting for our equal rights and we want equal freedoms and things like that. And those things are important. I'm not not, uh, negating those things. Those things are important. But the freedom that I have as a Christian man who is black is greater than any freedom that the country could ever give me. Mm. I'm already completely free in Jesus Christ, free and unbound from any people group, from any culture, from any ideology or philosophy. And that means because I'm free from them all, I can speak truth to them all. That's what I believe. I believe that to become all things for all men, we have to be free from all men so that we can speak into the lives of all people. I I know there's people out there that need to hear that, myself included. Pastor Robinson, I'm wondering, just very practically, someone might be thinking, I really want that. How do I get that? How do I get that sort of freedom in my life? How would you answer that question? Wow. I would say to read the Gospels more often. Hmm. I am amazed at how little we read the Gospels, even in our churches, how little we preach from the Gospels. If you want to see what freedom really looks like, you have to read the Gospels. You have to see the man, Jesus Christ himself, live out freedom right before your very eyes. In the midst of insults, never speaking a word, he was free from all condemnation. No one could condemn him. No one could bring him down or pull him into any conversation that he didn't want to be a part of. He was Mm. free. They brought the woman to him, the adulteress to Jesus. And they said, this woman has been caught in adultery. And the the tradition says uh, she should be stoned to death. And Jesus just bends down and starts writing on the ground. He did not feel pressure to respond. Mm. A challenge I believe we have in our churches nowadays is that every time the world has a flare up, we think that we are compelled to respond. And so we're responding and we're not acting. Mm. We're reacting and we're not acting. Mm. And Jesus is saying to me in my life, listen, you don't need to spend all of your life responding to the world's fires. There are going to be there were fires before you were born. There are going to be fires when you're gone. Don't live your life responding. The church should not live its life just responding to what the world deems to be relevant. Mm. But instead, when we're free, we don't feel compelled to engage in every conversation, every dispute, every argument. We Mm. can be quiet and listen and wait for God to give us the cue of when we are to approach the subject with wisdom 
And in that way, I believe we'd be more of a healing balm in the world. Yeah, right. I love that idea, too, that you've linked freedom and love. Like this idea of love. And love, by the way, isn't the same as tolerance. It's not that like we just turn a blind eye to everything. Love is not devoid of feeling, but it's not based on it, though. It's based on what you're saying is something much more profound. And I was reading from uh, Jerome, one of the church fathers earlier this morning, actually. And he was talking about how the Apostle Paul in his extreme old age would be carried into these church meetings and at the end they would stand him up and every every time he would say at the end of the service little children let us love one another and the disciples got like bored of that they're like why do you keep saying that and his response floored me it said because it is the lord's commandment and if this only is done it is enough that yes, feels sir. so countercultural to like this moment exactly what you were saying about the need to weigh in and have a hot take and a mic drop all the time yeah. with yeah. like the last minute or so we have left how, how do we actually live that out? Like for the Christ followers who are listening, what are, what are ways that we can live out our freedom by how we love one another, whether in our neighborhoods, our churches, or or online? How do we actually do that? The first thing I would say is to pray for one another, mm-hmm. to pray fervently for one another, for our neighbors, for the unsaved, for the whole world, uh, to care about one another, to take the time to 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 feel the pain. Uh, to slow down long enough to see the pain that's all around us. Mm. Man, as a pastor, you, 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 you're kind of forced to see the pain. Right. But, but when all the children of God uh, uh, slow down, get out of this rat race, mm-hmm. uh, let our guards down and allow ourselves to see the truth of the situations of so many people all around us, our hearts will be broken. And once my heart is broken, the compassion of Jesus Christ will flow out. But we don't take the time, I don't believe anymore, uh, to to really look into one another's eyes, Hmm. uh, to feel one another's pain, to hear one another's stories. Uh, We we, we become defensive. We're afraid of feeling pain because our world is based on pleasure. The pursuit of happiness is what it's all about. And so we're repelled repelled by, by pain. But I believe that I believe that as we, for example, one of the things I like to do, I like to get the different books on the poverty in America uh, to find out how many children are going to go to bed tonight with no food, with little food. I mean, 70 percent of the people in this country cannot afford a four hundred dollar emergency right this very moment. Right. That is that that is scary. That is hard. There is a lot of stress. There is a lot of frustration and a lot of pain. This is the perfect time to me and the perfect opportunity for the church to arise. And while everyone else is arguing and fighting and throwing arrows at one another, this is the perfect opportunity for us to go behind the scenes, to go in the other direction and begin to speak to the pain of so many in this world, not just black, not just white, but America is in pain. Mm -hmm. The world is in pain. But it seems sometimes like we're so busy trying to be right and trying to have the right answer that we overlook the suffering and the pain going on right outside of our own doors. I had a friend one time at church who said he was driving down the street and a a homeless person came up to his window uh, asking him for money. And he told me his his practice was to not look them in the face. Mm -hmm. If you just don't look at them, they go away. Just pretend like you don't even see them. Hmm. I thought to myself, wow, just to ignore the pain. You don't want to look on it because it's going to make you suffer. Right. 
Right. And so you reject the pain of others because you're afraid that it's going to cause you to suffer. That's a lot of what's going on right now mm. in our country and while we're talking past one another. Mm. When I hear people say, you know, about white privilege and all these different things, and, and I, I serve a lot of white people, and I say to myself, I, I wonder where that white privilege is for them. The, this white privilege thing doesn't go for everybody. There mm. are a lot of suffering white people as well as black people. The country mm. is suffering. Yeah. And the fact that we can't see that as Christians, never mind the world, they're doing what the world has always done. But we Christians are supposed to have the broader perspective hmm. to see the suffering and the pain of everyone and to answer the call hmm. because the pain and the groaning of the world is the call of God to the Christian. That's so good. That third voice that you're hearing, which, by the way, is much better suited for than for radio than Brian or I's combined. <laughs> Very uh, true. <laughs> pastor Calvin Robinson, pastor of Cornerstone Community Church on Chicago's near South Side. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, brothers. Thanks for having me. It's Appreciate our pleasure. It. We'd love to have you back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. We're on the home stretch. we're almost there, but uh, we got a lot more in store for you today and the rest of the week. But before we do that, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or wherever it is you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing. All that does help us out a whole lot. I'll briefly mention this headline, Brian. This is out of Religion News Service. It says, COVID-19 is more than a public health challenge. It's a moral test. And I think it's an interesting read, regardless of your persuasion. I'm sure some people will take issue with it, which is great. Like we want to be able to provide space for people to take issues with it. And uh, we might have time to get into it at the end here. But I'm going to get into this next article first, which was first a post that I saw. So I actually kind of had to hunt for some kind of reputable or even legible article. But this is the, uh, the headline says, The Curious Case of the Shopping Cart Theory. Will this tell you if you're a good person? Before we go any further, have you heard of the shopping cart theory? I just, no, I never have. I just told you off I'm like, what is this? And you're like, oh, I'm going to explain. I've never heard <laughs> of the shopping cart theory ever before in my life. Well, let me just read some of the theory. And it, it, was, uh, it was floating around Reddit and Twitter and all these other places as an image. Not a very attractive image, by the way. But let me, uh, let me just get into some of the theory. To return the shopping cart is an easy, convenient task. And no one which we all recognize is correct. Uh, wait, what is that? And one. Wow. Let me start over <laughs> for everybody following along. To return the shopping cart is an easy, convenient task, 
and one which we all recognize as correct, the appropriate thing to do. To return the shopping cart is objectively right. There are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return their cart. Simultaneously, it's not illegal to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore, the shopping cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it. Uh, I'll pause there. Are, is this, would this make it to a uh, grinds my gears segment for Brian Fromm? <laughs> I think so. Really? This is really, fa- I find this fascinating. That's now that you've read that. I'm like, it is true. It's so easy to return a shopping cart, but you can kind of ditch it on the side if you're in a rush or this or that. And uh, there's no, you know, there's no shopping cart police out there to yell at you if you don't and shame you. So uh, this is fascinating. It makes me wonder. Uh, yeah. Like, who are the types of people who do each, I guess? <laughs> well, and that's kind of why I wanted to uh, commit a segment to it, because I I thought that you would find it interesting. It but is. I also, I also need to just get something off my chest. This actually would make it to a grinds my gears for me. And probably for, for a long time. So I'll need you to pray for me for the rest of the segment because I need to kind of like temper my uh, my emotions here. So the, gr- the grinds my gears portion for you is people who don't return their shopping carts. Uh, yeah, especially if I'm like watching it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, just so okay. you could think well of me, I always return my shopping cart. When I was reading this, I'm going, wait, I'm the return the shopping cart guy as I was reading this. So, <laughs> Well, here's here's more from the original post. It says, no one will punish you for not returning the shopping cart. No one will fine you or kill you for not returning the shopping cart. You gain nothing by returning the shopping cart. You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your own heart. You must return the shopping cart because it is the right thing to do because it is correct. Now, the person, I forget who the actual author of this, goes on more aggressively than I would. Says a person who is unable to do this is no better than an animal, an absolute savage who can only be made to do what is right by threatening them with a law and the force that stands behind it. But the shopping cart is what determines whether a person is a good or bad member of society. So that last part, I don't, I don't support, I don't endorse. To me, that's like, all right. Again, there are probably are, Lots of other scenarios where someone couldn't, right? If if someone has any kind of physical ailment, like I would say, I'll get it. I'll grab it for you. Other people that I'm seeing all over Twitter, Twitter and Reddit are going, well, this is why they've employed people to gather the carts. That's part of their job. It's it's actually almost demeaning to put it back because that's the thing that somebody else was paid to do. I, I would love to know, are, are there any correlations between this rule and some of what you're seeing in culture and media right now. Uh, completely for sure. Like the shopping <laughs> cart one, the argument, it, it, it's this argument, right? Like if one person leaves their shopping cart out, it's not a big deal. But if every person who comes out of that uh, store uh, leaves their shopping cart, just in the middle of the parking lot, you know, right. well now you've got mass chaos, right? You're, you've got right. shopping carts everywhere. And so there's a selfishness to it for the person who's like, eh, someone else will get it. I'm going to leave it right here uh, as opposed to because it's like, well, if I if I don't do it and everyone else does, it'll all be fine. As opposed to what if everybody else doesn't mm. do it? Mm. Um, yeah, I you can totally make a connection. I'm going to step in in here, but you can make a connection with wearing masks with this right now. Sure. Um, people going, ah, you know, I don't like doing them. I don't like returning my shopping cart. I don't you. No one's making me do it. Um, 
but realizing that if nobody wore masks, if nobody returned a shopping cart, that that things would be a lot worse. So you could see it on there. I think, uh, and to tie it into your religion news article, that that there's a morality test to COVID nineteen right now. Like the best way to for us to beat it, quote unquote is if we all kind of take up our own responsibility, even though there's nobody watching over us. We're not going to mm-hmm. get in trouble most of the time. Now, if you go inside without a mask, you might get kicked out, whatever else. Right, uh, right. But most of the time, we're not going to be uh, punished or fined or whatever. Uh, but if a lot of people just take that that um, uh, that perspective, we're going to be in trouble. The same way if everyone just leaves their shopping carts everywhere, uh, it would be mass chaos. So, yeah, you could totally make a connection to how things are right now. Let me read a little bit more from this Medium article because I actually thought it was it was pretty interesting. So they're talking about the cart, right? It's right to return the cart, wrong to leave it somewhere. Self-governance only does a little in explaining the behavior of a person. So self-governance means usually comprised of all of the following, a code of conduct that outlines acceptable behavior within the unit or group, a means of ensuring external authority does not become involved unless and until certain criteria are satisfied, a means of facilitating the intended functions of the unit or group. It could prove you're a self-governing person, but it doesn't mean you're a good or bad person, which I think the Christian ethos has a lot to weigh in there. Uh, I believe it is the reason by, uh, why it sparked an interest in many, an act so ill-considered, but if you think about it, it explains how we operate. If you apply Positive Psychology by Martin Seligman, uh, most likely you will all, you will return the cart. Positive experiences like happiness, joy, inspiration, and love. In this case, you'll return the cart because you find joy in doing what's right. Positive states and traits like gratitude, resilience, and compassion. You'll return the cart because you're grateful that you're done with your grocery shopping. Positive institutions, applying positive principles within entire organizations and institutions. You'll return the cart because it what is what was asked by the store. On the mm. other hand, B.J. Fogg's behavior model uh, stated that there are three elements that must converge at the same moment for behavior to occur. I thought this was fascinating. The three, uh, the three that must converge, the three elements are motivation, ability, and prompt. If time is already given under prompt, at least the ability and motivation should exist. Ability, are you physically able to return the cart? Motivation, do you still have the energy to return the cart? It's getting complicated, right? It's probably the reason why it created such a thread of discussion. In the grand scheme of things, you can't use the shopping cart theory as a basis if a person is good or bad. Morality is comparatively complex if you will base it on this theory. It just means our individual differences could get in the way of doing what is right. I also wonder if this theory could cause a ripple effect that one day we won't see any scattered shopping carts anywhere. When we do what is right when no one is looking, our character is being strengthened. It builds a sense of integrity by standing for what is right and not operating mainly within the context of reward and punishment. So next time you're finished with your grocery shopping, ask yourself to return or not return the shopping cart. That is the question. Fascinating. Any, any final thoughts as we wrap up, Brian? No, I think it's fa- – I've never heard that and so much of that makes sense. I need to chew on that some more. I'm certainly going to think about it at the store next time, but it <laughs> is a microcosm. It is a microcosm of so much big – so many of the bigger questions in our culture, just that shopping cart theory. I think that's fascinating. Yep. I totally agree, man. And we would love to know what you think. All of these articles have been posted to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Weigh in in the comment sections. Send us a message. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and we will see you all tomorrow. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160.